Uh, last Sunday, we looked at the first phase of Jesus' trial before Pontius Pilate. The religious leaders tried to argue that Jesus had committed sedition against Rome and uh, should therefore be put to death, but after investigating and questioning, Jesus Pilate found no evidence of this, and after even sending Jesus over to King Herod, uh, he found no evidence, evidence of it uh, either. And when Pilate um, sought to honor a, a tradition that they did on Passover, uh, you know, the releasing of, of one prisoner back into the population, he presented Jesus before the crowd and asked them if they wanted the king of the Jews. And uh, they replied, away with this man, release to us Barabbas. And of course, we talked about a lot more than that, but that's basically where we left off. And you can always go back and listen to our recordings. They're at our website. In the next section, we will examine the second phase of Jesus' trial before Pontius Pilate. It is the penal phase or the punishment phase. Please take your Bibles and turn to John. We're going to be in chapter 19. We're going to be focusing today on verses 1 through 16a. 1 through 16a. Before we dive in, I think it's a good idea to answer a question. Um, The first thing that comes to mind here is after Pilate declares Jesus to be innocent multiple times in the previous section, the question is then, why then did he punish Jesus? I mean, it was literally against Roman law to punish an innocent person. Why did he, after finding Jesus innocent in verse 38, why did he punish him? Um, Well, Pilate knew the law. He knew that he was about to break the law. And I think what he did was he kind of made a compromise. He didn't want to put Jesus to death, nor do I think that he wanted to punish him. But what happened was, during this whole episode, the religious leaders stirred up the crowd pretty significantly, got them uh, to the point of almost rioting. And you can see that over in Mark chapter 15, verse 11. They just stirred up the crowd, and so now you've got in the praetorium courtyard, you've got this near ruckus happening. And... If you were a Roman governor, your primary responsibility was to keep the peace in your province. If you were a provincial governor, you had to keep the peace. That was your primary task. And, you know, the Pax Romana, which was this peace era uh, in the Roman Empire, was in full effect at the time. And so his primary responsibility, no matter what, was to keep the peace. He had to do that. If a riot broke out, the governor could be blamed, more than likely would be blamed, and then disciplined maybe even removed from office. And this is, this is not something that Pilate wanted to experience at all. So he compromises by punishing Jesus while hoping that the terrible sight of Jesus after this punishment would somehow satisfy the onlookers, somehow sicken them, leading to uh, maybe a change of mind. You know, if, they, if he brought Jesus out and Jesus was this grotesque sight after being punished, maybe the people would just say, okay, that's enough. That's enough. I mean, they probably wouldn't be able to hardly look at him. And maybe that would quell their excitement, and maybe that would allow him to release Jesus to them, because that's primarily what he wanted. But 
like before, Pilate underestimated the religious leaders. He underestimated the crowd. Uh, Pilate consistently underestimated who he was dealing with. The only thing that would satisfy the crowd, the only thing that would satisfy the, uh, you know, satanic hatred and bloodlust of the religious leaders was crucifixion and death. It's the only thing that would bring satisfaction. But I have to give you a word of warning before we proceed. I'm going to describe in detail what happens in this text, and uh, parts of this sermon will be fairly graphic. Uh, The text isn't overly graphic, but the things that it says happened are graphic things, and so I think it's good that we go into a little bit of detail. I'm not going to try to get John Wick 3 on you, uh, but, you know, and go overboard because this scripture is discreet, uh, but we need to know what, a flog, what flogging is. We need to know what Jesus experienced. So let's pick it up where we left off last Sunday. We're going to begin at chapter 19, verses 1 through 3. 1 through 3. This is what happened next. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. In verse 3, they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, exclamation point, and struck him with their hands. We stop there. John begins by describing the initial punishment, uh, punishment of Jesus or the initial punishment that Jesus received. This is what he does. He starts by telling us what happened immediately following uh, that petition, you know, the petition to release him back to the crowd, and, and then the crowd's response to have Barabbas uh, released. And so he begins by identifying five things that were done to Jesus. And firstly, obviously, he was flogged, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. In some English translations, the word scourged is used, if you use a NASB or a King James, a New King James, a YLT, Young's Literal, or maybe a a Wycliffe translation. Those are some older ones. It's going to say scourged. Uh, To be flogged or scourged was to be whipped with a special kind of whip. It had a short wooden handle with several thin leather straps dangling off of it, probably about eight or nine of them. And on the ends of these leather straps were pieces of bone, pieces of glass, pieces of lead. Sharp objects were fixed to the ends of these these little pieces of leather. And the victim would be stripped and then bound to a pole and then beaten by several torturers. And I think usually they use three guys. You'd have three lined up and one would whip, the middle one would whip, the end one would whip. And they would just keep doing it like that and just keep striking him the back of the legs, the back, over the shoulder, onto the sides, these sorts of things. Jewish law set the maximum amount of blows at 40. So if you were judged in a Jewish court and and you, you were assigned to be, your punishment was flogging, they could strike you up to 40 times, but we know how, uh, <laughs> how cautious the Jews were with not violating their own laws. They violated them all the time. But in this case, they would literally issue 39 strikes to make sure that they didn't ac- accidentally go over 40. So they would do 39. But the Romans were not bound by any of these Jewish restrictions. In other words, they didn't have to stop at 39 or 40. They could do whatever they wanted. 
the torturers would, would continue to flog the victim until the torturers became exhausted. They just ran out of gas. I can't swing anymore, Fred. Or until the victim died. Because a lot of times this was a flogging to death. Or until the commanding officer gave the command to stop. Okay, that's enough. Maybe he would look at the guy, the victim, and say, okay, he's had enough. And flogging left victims like almost unrecognizable. Like you would start out and you would know who that is, and by the time the flogging was over, you, you really couldn't tell because the face would be laid open. You just They were unrecognizable. Uh, their bodies would, would be literally torn open, exposing bones and muscles and tendons, veins, organs. Sometimes they would be lacerated on the sides, breaking through the ribs, and internal organs would come out, or at least be seen. I would liken flogging to, to being stripped and then dragged back and forth over a bed of razors. I mean, you can imagine what that would be like. The punishment was so horrible, so appalling, that Roman citizens were exempt from it. Anyone else could be flogged, but if you were a Roman citizen, that didn't apply to you because it was just too, too obscene, too gruesome. Later on, uh, book of Acts, we see that the Apostle Paul was scheduled to be flogged, but when the Roman officials found out he was actually a Roman citizen, they immediately canceled the process. Acts 22, 25 through 29. So he was actually going to be flogged, and then he declared his citizenship, and they said, whoops, we're sorry for even suggesting it. In fact, they were upset that they had bound him. Apparently, you couldn't handcuff a Roman citizen either or something like that. Crazy. And Matthew 27, verse 32, tells us that a man by the name of Simon of Cyrene was actually appointed, he was picked from the crowd, I suppose, and he was appointed to help Jesus carry his cross up the hillside to Golgotha. And this, I share this detail with you because it reveals the severity of Jesus' flogging. He was flogged so severely and so badly that he had not the strength, the energy, the muscle coordination, the bodily coordination to carry his crossbar all the way up the hill. He had to have assistance. You might say that they whipped Jesus within an inch of his life. They tore him open. It was as if they threw him into a shark tank and then pulled him out before he could be devoured. So firstly, he was flogged. He was just whipped beyond recognition, just torn open. Secondly, he was crowned with thorns, verse 2a. The text says, And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, and put it on his head. Now, during certain occasions, the Caesar emperor would wear a wreath on his head, signifying his glory and his high position. And the soldiers fashioned a crown from thorny branches they had carefully gathered from a nearby rose bush or some kind of a briar, and they, they fashioned it together and mockingly placed it upon Jesus' head. You know, we've got a decent little rose bush in our front yard, and how many of you guys have roses at your house? Yeah, they're, they're pretty common around here. I guess they like the, the dry temperature, but 
Uh, we have a, a decent little bush out there, and you know whenever the flowers die, those little bulbs stay there, and you're supposed to clip them off so that you can get more flowers. So I go out and do this all the time, and whenever I see dead flowers on it, I go trim them back, and we get new flowers. But once in a while, you're out there, and I never wear gloves or you know, think about that at all. I'm just careful, but pretty much every time I go out there, I get pricked. And, uh, you know, I get something. Sometimes they break off in the end of my finger. I'm looking at it, and it's just kind of hanging out. And uh, it, they hurt. Believe it or not, for such a small little sharp object, they hurt pretty bad. Sometimes there's a burning sensation associated with it. Have you ever noticed that? It's not that sometimes it's just like a little pinprick and it hurts, you pull it out. Sometimes when you remove the thorn, there's a burning and a pulsing that's happening there. And that's because there's a fungus that lives on rose thorns and on all other thorns called sporothrix. It's basically in soil, it's on moss, in moss. Uh, it gathers on hay bales, so farmers are always getting this stuff. In particular, it's, you really find it on rose thorns and on briar thorns. Uh, Sporothrix is literally everywhere, it's worldwide. You, you, they've sampled you know, soil throughout the world and you find this you, you find this fungus just about everywhere. And the thing is, is that it can lead to sporotrichosis, which is known as rose picker's disease. How many of you have heard of that? And, and sporotrichosis can actually become a systemic infection, including the central nervous system. It can get up into your lymph nodes and these sorts of things. And it's, it's rare that it happens, but people have actually died from it. So I want you to think about that. A single prick from a thorn can kill you, literally. And yet Jesus was pricked by dozens and dozens of thorns as those cruel soldiers pressed that crown onto his head. He felt each razor-sharp spike penetrate and tear his flesh. Can you imagine the stinging? Can you imagine the burning? Can you imagine the blood pouring out of the top of his head now, as well as the rest of his body that he had been whipped within an inch of his life? I think that uh, the top of his head, his scalp and his, his forehead, probably had felt as if it had been dipped in lamp oil and set on fire. As I said, I get one little prick on the end of my finger, and, and I'm a grown man, and I'm like, oh, that hurts. Where's the back pain? I can't imagine what it must have been like for him. We don't talk about that crown of thorns much, do we? That was a devastating punishment, a horrible punishment. And that's not the only thing. There's another here. Number three, he was wrapped in a robe, verse 2b says, and arrayed him in a purple robe. To further mock Jesus, the soldiers removed one of their robes or cloaks and put it on him. It was purple in color. I think some translations say scarlet. Uh, in any case, this was the color that royalty wore. Uh, and this, these soldiers who were dealing with him were like, uh, they were high guards. They were high Roman officials. And so they wore these royal robes and they placed one on him just to sort of mock him. Matthew tells us that they also placed a reed in his hand to symbolize a scepter. And 
they took turns, you know, bowing before him, right? Matthew 27, 29. So they put the crown of thorns on him, they wrap him in the royal colors, they put a scepter in his hand, and then they're, you know, allegedly bowing before him and paying him homage. Now, I just keep in mind that Jesus' back, sides, arms, and legs have been shredded because of the flogging. I mean, he had deep lacerations all over his body. You know, and the last thing that you would want if you were in his condition is to have clothing placed over you. Uh, we know what it's like to have a, a, a significant sunburn, and you don't want clothes all over you. You need to have it out in the open. He didn't have a sunburn. He'd been ripped open. And now you've got this robe placed over him, and you know that in just a few moments, as his blood begins to coagulate, that robe is sucked into his wounds and coagulating and mixing in with that. Imagine what it must have been like when the soldiers tore it off of him and put his regular clothes back on him before marching him up the hill, Matthew 27, 31. I don't even like having a Band-Aid taken off. And this was like one big giant Band-Aid over multiple wounds torn right off of his body. Number four, he was verbally mocked, verse 3a. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. After dressing him in king-like apparel, crown, robe, and scepter, the soldiers further mocked Jesus by pretending to pay homage to him, by hailing him, King of the Jews. It's just mockery. They're just making fun of him. Five, he was struck, verse 3b. It just simply says, and struck him with their hands. Struck means to be slapped across the face. Okay, a a punch to the face was meant to inflict damage, right? That's what a punch is meant to do. But a slap to the face is meant to humiliate. This is a cultural thing. In fact, it's in our culture today. If you get punched, that hurts. If you get slapped, somebody's trying to humiliate you. Somebody's trying to demean you. When a person is struck on the face with an open palm, the strike connects with a lot more nerves than a punch ever would. A punch is more focused. A slap just hits just about every nerve ending on the side of your face. And then when you're struck, the nerves in your face, they freak out. It's like, they're, you know, it's like electrical current, and it wigs out, resulting in momentary paralysis of the face. How many of you have ever been slapped across the face? Brandon's the first guy to put his hand up. And then his wife said, you guys need to stop beating each other up. (laughs) But when you get slapped across the face, have you ever, I've been slapped across the face, you notice there's a numb sensation that immediately follows. And that's because all those nerve endings are freaking out. That's why we feel numb or stunned when we get slapped across the face. As each soldier stepped up to pay Jesus homage, he also slapped him across the face. They just kept coming up and hail to the king of the Jews and smacking him across the face on both sides. His whole face was now numb. Matthew adds that as they were doing this, they, they were also spitting on him and spitting in his face. And they also snatched the reed from his hand and began to beat him over the head with it. Matthew 27, verse 30. After this initial punishment was complete, 
Pilate sought to further humiliate Jesus by putting him on public display. Look at verses 4 and 5. Pilate went out again and said to them, he's saying to the crowd, he's out in the praetorium courtyard, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So Pilate again enters the courtyard. He announced that he was going to present Jesus to the crowd. He reiterated his previous verdict, I find no guilt in him. The crowd was probably confused at this point. Earlier, Pilate announced that he would punish Jesus. Uh, Luke chapter 23, verse 16 and verse 22. And yet now he's saying, I'm going to bring him out to you, but I I still find him not guilty. So the crowd's got to be scratching their head. They didn't know what to expect as Jesus was brought out. Did he punish him? Is he going to let him go? Is he innocent? I mean, what's going on here? The soldiers escorted Jesus into the courtyard, and he was still wearing the crown of thorns. He was still wearing the purple robe. The sight of him was undoubtedly too gruesome for the faint at heart, or faint of heart. Some folks may have turned away, while others gazed upon him in warped curiosity. The king of the Jews had been transformed into a, a hideous heap of, of blood, bone, and guts by the Roman torture machine. Pilate declared, Behold the man! Look at him! Back in verse 14, he said, Behold your king! Why did he switch it up here? Why did he refer to Jesus as, as man instead of king like he did earlier that morning? Well, this was his way of trying to communicate to the crowd that Jesus was not a threat to them or to Rome. Look, he's just a pulverized man. He's nothing. He's just a a severely wounded man is what Pilate's trying to convey. What could he possibly do? He's no threat to me. He's no threat to Rome. He's no threat to you. Look at him. I mean, he had been beaten so badly, he was hardly recognizable. What threat could he possibly pose to you now as this king? A person in Jesus' condition would literally spend months and months in the ICU if they didn't succumb to their injuries on the way to the hospital. I, I literally believe that If Jesus hadn't been taken just moments later to the cross and crucified, he would have died of the injuries that he had. But that's not God's plan. But he was that wounded. He was that injured. Again, Pilate assumed that the terrible sight of Jesus would somehow satisfy the crowd or sicken them so that they would change their minds. But he was wrong. He was wrong. Look at how the religious leaders responded in verse 6a. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! The terrible sight of Jesus here was like blood in the water of a shark tank. I mean, it just, it didn't stop them. It didn't cause them to reconsider. It didn't stifle them. You know how it is when you throw some chum in the water, the sharks get stirred up and start, you know, they get pretty nuts, they get pretty crazy. And that's exactly what happened here. 
blood in the water with sharks. The religious leaders just took one look at Jesus, weren't grossed out at all by his appearance, and just started yelling, just go ahead and kill him now. Crucify him, crucify him. And they stirred up the crowd even more. Before they had done that for the release of Barabbas, now they're stirring the crowd up and they're repeating the religious leaders, crucify him, crucify him, Mark 15, 14. Pilate's theory, Pilate's strategy had totally failed. Look at verse 6b. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Now this is the second time he declares Jesus innocent in this episode right here. But he was literally, at this point, he was just exasperated by the religious leaders and the crowd's just stubborn relentlessness. He literally commands the religious leaders to take Jesus and crucify him themselves. He wants them to go and do it because he knows in the back of his mind he can't execute an innocent man. It's against Roman law. He couldn't find any sedition or insurrectionist behavior with Jesus. And they're, they're shouting, you have to kill him, you have to kill him. He's saying, I, I, you take him and do it. The verse could literally be rendered, you take him and crucify him. I want nothing more to do with him. Now, MacArthur suggests that Pilate may have lifted the restriction that uh, did not allow Roman-controlled nations to perform executions. You know, that rule was in place. The Jews had brought Jesus originally to him because they felt that it wasn't their right to do that because that right had been stripped a decade, several decades prior to this episode. And this was, incredibly, one of the most jealously guarded prerogatives of Roman rule, and yet... Pilate's patience had, and resolve had just been worn so far down. He had just been utterly depleted that, that I don't think at this point that he even cared about Roman rules anymore. I don't want to have anything to do with it. I'll tell you what, I'll lift the restriction. You take him and crucify him and kill him. You just deal with it yourselves. That's what MacArthur is suggesting is, is happening here. And this may be true. He's just so fed up with it. It's like, look, you take him and do it. I'm done. I don't want to deal with it anymore. I've, I've beat this man ruthlessly, and you want him dead? You take him and kill him. We can't. It's not, it's not legal for us to do it. I'm telling you it is. Just do it. And look at verses 7 and 8. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. In verse 8, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid the religious leaders refused Pilate's command and really stated the, the true reason for why they wanted Jesus dead. They said he has made himself the Son of God, which in their minds was a form of blasphemy. They may have had Leviticus 24.16 in mind here. It states that anyone who commits blasphemy, any kind of blasphemy, shall be put to death. Now, the, at this point, the religious leaders had the upper hand. They did. Roman governors were expected to uphold the local laws of conquered nations as long as those laws did not conflict with Roman priority. 
In other words, when they would conquer a nation, that nation's laws would remain in effect provided that they did not mess with what the Romans were there to accomplish. And so these Jews have a law against blasphemy, and they're telling him, you have to uphold our law. It doesn't conflict with Roman law. That's what they were doing. They were demanding, literally demanding here, that Pilate fulfill his duty by adhering to a Jewish law which had zero impact on Rome. And I think in the back of Pilate's mind, it did have some impact on Rome because he wasn't supposed to execute people who were not guilty according to Roman law. But then again, this is the Jewish law in effect here. The religious leaders were basically saying, in effect, according to our law and according to your rules, you have to execute Jesus for us. You must. Now, Pilate was toast. He had nowhere to go from here. And he was, as the text says, even more afraid. I would say that he was terrified. Why? Why was he terrified? Because now he was facing the reality of having to put Jesus to death? No. No. He wasn't terrified because of that. He was terrified because he had just been told that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. That's what caught his attention. That's what terrified him. That's what made him afraid. You must understand that Romans were very, very superstitious. Very superstitious. According, according to their religion, right? We call it Roman mythology. Some of their gods had come down to have children with mortal men and women. This is his religion. He is a, a pious Roman who believes in Roman mythology, who believes in those gods. And, and, and they believed that some gods stepped off Mount Olympus. Believe it or not, they shared that mountain with the Greek gods. Somehow, I don't know. And really, if you look at Roman mythology, it's kind of identical to Greek, just they've changed some of the names, you know. Uh, but in any case, he's terrified here because he understands in his religion it is totally possible for Jesus to be an actual son of a god, or what we would call a demigod. He was terrified. He was superstitious and terrified here. You think of their religion. Bacchus was the son of Jupiter and uh, Semele. Hercules, you know, we all have heard of him. We've seen the cartoons. Hercules was the son of Jupiter and Alcmene. Romulus and Remus were the twin sons of Mars and Rhea Silvia. Those are Roman gods, and those are demigods who came from those relationships. In Pilate's mind, it was absolutely possible for Jesus to be a son of a god, a demigod, half man, half god. Incredibly, Pilate was closer to the truth about Jesus than the religious leaders were. <laughs> Think about it. But Jesus is not half god, half man. He is fully god and fully man. He is born of a virgin through God the Holy Spirit. Pilate was likely thinking this at this point, and this is why he was so afraid. Just think about the events that have unfolded, all the information that was available to him at this point. This is what I think was going through his mind. Jesus is very popular. I mean, Pilate was fully aware of how Jesus had been marched into town just a week 
previous and hailed, Hosanna, save us, king, king, king. He saw the multitudes, the thousands of people there. He knew about Jesus' popularity. He's thinking, Jesus is very popular. I've heard about his supernatural signs and wonders. Everyone in that region knew that Jesus was, bare minimum, a miracle worker. And he knew that Jesus had done things. These were irrefutable, undeniable supernatural occurrences. Jesus is very popular. I've heard of his supernatural signs and wonders. He said he is a king, and yet he said his kingdom is not of this world. Jesus had just said that to Pilate. That's swirling around in his mind. The religious leaders want him dead because he made himself the son of God. They just said that. And now he's thinking, maybe he is a demigod. Oh, no. I just had him nearly beaten to death. I may have just nearly murdered a demigod. I could be in serious trouble. If I crucify and kill him, the gods on Mount Olympus might seek vengeance and destroy me, destroy my family, destroy my household. It's perfectly logical for these things to be going through his mind. I know it sounds like conjecture, but Pilate's no dummy. This, this is the information he had available to him, and he was afraid. And if you just pulverized an important person, you're going to be pretty terrified, aren't you? And now he's being told that he has no choice but to put this demigod to death. He's terrified. Right now, he's not sure exactly what to do, and he, he kind of decides in this moment of great fear that the best course of action is to take Jesus away from the crowd again and take him in the back and further interview him. I got to get to the bottom of who this guy is. Did I just whip a God? Am I about to kill a God? Because I'll surely die. Verses 9 and 10. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? Are you from Olympus? Where have you descended from? Where is your kingdom? You said it's not of this world. And look at Jesus' response, but Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? He literally takes Jesus back into the praetorium. He questions him. But this time the Lord is totally, completely silent And there is a fulfillment of a great messianic prophecy here in Isaiah 53, 7. It says, speaking of Jesus, speaking of the Messiah to come. And now he's here, right? In this context, he's there. It says, he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Right there, messianic prophecy is fulfilled. Completely frustrated by his silence, Pilate rebukes and warns Jesus. My paraphrase of verse 10. So now you're refusing to talk to me. You talked to me before, but now you're refusing to talk to me. Do you not understand who I am? 
Do you not understand that I have the power to either release you or kill you? That's what Pilate says to him. And Jesus' reply is just spectacular. Look at verse 11. Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. This is just phenomenal. You know, one of the things that John has been seeking to do throughout his whole gospel is present the signs and wonders, present the fulfilled prophecies, present the sovereign statements that Jesus made, all of which to prove that Jesus is indeed the Messiah as well as God. In our text here, we see this again. He's doing it again. Back in verse 4, the innocence of Jesus is declared. Jesus was innocent. That shows that he was the Messiah and God. He was not guilty of any kind of sin. Uh, Over in verse 9 there, we have answered prophecy that we just looked at, right? That proves that he is Messiah and God. And right here in verse 11, we have a a declaration of Jesus' sovereign authority and sovereign judgment, all of which, again, John is illustrating and putting before us to show that he is truly God, that he is truly Messiah. Now let's get back to the text. Jesus made it very clear that Pilate did not have ultimate control over the events related to himself, the Son of Man. That's in effect what Jesus said to him. Jesus was rebuked by Pilate. Do you not understand who I am? Like, I'm the sovereign. I can do whatever. Jesus rebukes him back. You'd have no authority to do anything to me if it had not been granted. Not granted at all. That literally nothing happens, even the death of Jesus Christ. Even that does not happen outside of the sovereignty of God. Now, Pilate obviously did not believe in God. He believed in his gods and they were nothing but idols, but he did not believe in the one true God. If he had, he would believe in Jesus Christ. But he did not believe in God, nor was he aware of God's sovereign plan. And yet here he's being used as an instrument. You see touches of compatibilism here where man is making his decisions based on his will and desires and corrupt nature, and yet God is working through those decisions to accomplish accomplish his sovereign purposes in these things. You see this here. Pilate has no idea that there's actually a God behind the scenes who's worked all this out and that every step Pilate takes is right in a footstep that was predetermined. Pilate doesn't know, he's op- but he is culpable. He is responsible because he's operating in accordance with his will and desires. He didn't believe in God, and yet Jesus says, your authority's been given. But he was still a culpable moral agent. In other words, Pilate was responsible for his actions. He was responsible for his sin, even though God was working behind the scenes to accomplish his purposes. God is so brilliant that he can actually accomplish everything that he wants to accomplish through unaware sinners, but they're aware of what they're doing and why they're doing it, and they're fully responsible and culpable for it. That's a level of brilliance and genius. That's insane. And that's what God is doing here. But Jesus also said something else to him that's very fascinating. He said that he told him that the one who handed him over was guilty of 
the greater sin, a greater sin. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't absolve Pilate of his sin here. He says, there's some, you're a sinner. What you're doing is sinful, but there's somebody who's committed a greater offense. That's what he tells him. Now, who was he referring to? Well, some say he was referring to the Jewish people because they were rejecting their Messiah and all that, and I think that's true. But more particularly, he was speaking of Caiaphas, the high priest. He was speaking of Caiaphas, the high priest. He says, therefore, he, who he doesn't say they, he says, therefore, he who delivered me over. He's speaking of the high priest, Caiaphas. He's the one that had Jesus taken over there. And he had seen the overwhelming evidence that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. Pilate had not, right? Pilate hadn't seen any of these displays. He's being told about these things. He's heard about these things through, you know, what, what, his, what the people are saying, but he's never been publicly exposed to these things. He's not a, aware of these manifestations personally. He doesn't see them. And so you get the idea here that there's more culpability and responsibility with Caiaphas, who saw it all. And yet Pilate is still guilty, but not in the same manner that Caiaphas is. Plus, it was Caiaphas who, from a human perspective, had put Pilate in the position he was currently in. In other words, Pilate is guilty of his sin, but he didn't ask for this particular thing. He wasn't there inviting it. He didn't say, sure, bring him to me at 5 a.m. I'll judge him for you. These Jewish leaders, including Caiaphas, brought Jesus to him and forced him into this scenario in a way, and he's been trying to release Jesus the whole time, and yet he's still guilty, but not like the one who handed him over, Caiaphas. Now we move to verse 12. Look at this. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Wow. Now, it's true. Pilate did not want to put an innocent man to death. He did not want to put a potential demigod to death, right? Oh, if he's a son of God, one of the gods has come down from Olympus and been with his mama. I don't want nothing to do with that. So what does he do? He doesn't want to put an innocent man to death. He knows he's being threatened. He knows he has no choice. But at the same time, he does not want to do this. He does not want to incur the wrath of the gods or anything else upon himself. And so he maintains a steady effort to release Jesus. Right? From then on, Pilate sought to release him. All the way up to the point where he has to turn him over to crucifixion. He's trying to get him freed. But the religious leaders hit him with the ultimate threat here. If he continued to reject their request, they would inform the Caesar of the situation. They would go to the Caesar or send correspondence to him telling him that Pilate had failed to execute a dangerous insurrectionist who did what? Misled our nation, forbid us to give tribute to Caesar, and said he is Christ, a king. Right? Luke 23, 2. If... The Caesar was made aware of this situation by the Jews, and that's what they presented to him. Pilate would be, losing his job would be the least of his trouble if that Caesar believed the Jews. And he probably would because Tiberius, who was the Caesar at the time, was incredibly paranoid, insecure. He was known for his brutality against his subordinates. 
Oh, he would undoubtedly believe their argument and seek some kind of retribution against Pilate. Imagine going to the Caesar and saying, your governor refused to put to death a guy who forbid us from paying taxes to you. You go to the IRS today and do that. You're going to go to jail or get some serious fines. Oh, the Caesar would not tolerate this at all. Pilate would be in deep, deep, deep trouble if the word got out. Pilate feared the Roman gods. Verse 8 makes it clear, right? He's thinking Jesus is a demigod that's tied to his religion. He's terrified of the potential there. But his fear of the Roman Caesar, Tiberius, was much, much stronger. He was more worried about, you know, the Roman Caesar over in Rome than he was the alleged gods on Mount Olympus. In fact, many Romans believed that the Caesars were gods. Uh, when Julius Caesar was assassinated in 44 BC, he was officially recognized as a god by the Roman state. In 29 BC, his adopted son and successor, Augustus, had temples built throughout Asia Minor so that people could worship him as a god. Pilate may have saw Caesar Tiberius as a god. I think he did. Maybe a more terrifying and dangerous god than the gods on Olympus. In any case, he had been backed into a corner, but he still had protocol to follow, which gave him just a little more time. Look at verse 13. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat him or, and he sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the Stoned Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. The protocol in, involved bringing the accused to the judgment seat or the stone pavement, which again is called Gabbatha in Aramaic. The phrase stone pavement is uh, lithostrotos in Greek, and it literally means paved with stones. This may have been at the fortress of uh, Antonia, because its floor was literally paved with large limestones. Apparently, there was a stone seat that had been hewn from a large piece of limestone positioned in the middle or at the end of the courtyard in this area. Similar to how a, a judge would take his place at the bench, Pilate sat down on this stone seat. Jesus was brought over and placed next to him. But before he could render the sentence, a note was delivered to him. It was from his wife, Claudia. It warned, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Matthew 27, verse 19. His wife, had a, Claudia, had a mysterious dream uh, earlier that morning while she was asleep, and it was really more like a nightmare because it woke her up multiple times, causing her to lose sleep and, in her own words, suffer much. It was terrifying enough that she sent a note to the praetorium uh, to warn her husband. And, and, and you think about it, the messenger was pretty bold because court was already in session. Once the governor took that seat, you didn't interrupt now, just like you wouldn't in a courtroom with one of our judges. You might be held in contempt, and back then, maybe even death. And yet this messenger comes in with this note very frantic and passes it off to Pilate. 
or at least it's passed to Pilate by somebody else. In the note, she refers to Jesus as a righteous man. Did you notice that? The Greek word for righteous can also be translated into English as just. A just man is one who has done no wrong. Claudia's dream affirmed Pilate's findings. Jesus was indeed innocent. Her note was meant to warn him not to put Jesus to death, not to punish Jesus. And after reading it, his fear obviously increased because in verses 14 and 15, he tried to appeal to the crowd one last time. Notice John's details. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, here's Pilate again speaking to the Jews. He's seated at this throne of justice and Jesus is next to him. He said to the Jews, behold your king, exclamation point. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. First, John gives us the date and time that this is playing out. It was the day of preparation of the Passover, which was basically early Friday morning. And it was about the sixth hour, which means Roughly, it's about noon now, probably between 9 a.m. and noon. And Pilate mockingly declares once more, behold your king. Yes, back in the back of his mind, he wants Jesus freed, but he's still mocking them. And it was as if he had said, take him, he's yours. Here he is, take him. But the religious leaders continued with that same theme, away with him, crucify him, get rid of him. Pilate says, are you sure? Are you sure you want me to crucify your king? At that point, the highest ranking members of the Sanhedrin, Caiaphas, Annas, and several other former high priests, notice how it says high priests, stepped forward and they declared, we have no king but Caesar. Their hatred for Jesus was, was so deep and their desire for him to be killed, for him to be crucified was so great, they literally blasphemed the God they allegedly loved and worshipped. They were the ones who violated Leviticus 24.16. They pledged total and absolute allegiance to Caesar alone right here. They blasphemed. They were the guilty ones. They were the guilty ones all along. Pilate's last-ditch effort failed. Completely out of options, his only remaining move was to honor the religious leader's demand and sentence. <laughs> sentence him to death, Jesus. Look at... 16a. It says, so he delivered him over to them to be crucified. And Pilate delivered Jesus over to who? The religious leaders? No, they wouldn't do it. He delivered him over to Roman executioners to be crucified and killed. 
At about this time, something else was happening. Somebody was experiencing some serious guilt. It was the betrayer, Judas Iscariot. I think he was in the praetorium watching the trial. If not, he had heard about it very quickly. When he saw that Jesus had been condemned to death, he immediately regretted his decision to sell Jesus out. I mean, he had heard Pilate himself say Jesus was innocent about five times during this short trial. I mean, he was filled with guilt and the shame of betraying someone who loved him and cared for him and who was innocent. But it wasn't the kind of guilt that, you know, leads to repentance and salvation. It was the opposite. Upon hearing Jesus, Jesus, is being, Jesus being condemned to death, he just flees to the temple and he tries to return the 30 pieces of silver. He managed to find a few religious leaders who were there, but they refused to take the money back. Uh, we don't give refunds when it comes to the king of the Jews. And Jesus threw the money bag on the floor He found a sturdy tree, no doubt, outside of town, and maybe not. And he hung himself from that tree. And the religious leaders picked up the coins and used the money to buy a field, the field of blood, potter's field. Matthew 27, verses 3 through 10. Closing. There are six responses to Jesus in my sermon. I will quickly identify and parallel each one to people today. Okay? Number one, the religious leaders responded by absolutely hating Jesus and totally wanting, they just totally wanted him executed. They wanted him removed from the earth. It was out of this bitter hatred for Jesus and they wanted him dead. Well, people today hate Jesus. I think most people won't admit to that. Uh, A few will, but they certainly hate him through their lifestyle and through the blasphemies and things they say and taking his name in vain or whatever. Uh, But they do hate him today just as much as they did then. Now, they may not be able to execute Jesus because he lives forever, Hebrews 7.24 but they do everything they can to remove him from their lives, right? They attempt to kill him off from their existence. Is this you? Number two, the impressionable crowd was swayed by the religious leaders and turned against Jesus. People today are just as impressionable and swayed by false religion by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by the craftiness and deceitful schemes. Ephesians 4.14. Is this you? Number three, the Roman soldiers mocked and pulverized Jesus. People today mock Jesus. They curse Him. They blaspheme Him. They... They do ignominious things in His name. They, in a sense, 
pulverize him, when they trample the Son of God underfoot, treat the blood of the covenant as an unholy thing, when they insult the Holy Spirit who brings God's mercy to us, Hebrews 10.29, is this you? Number four, Pilate was afraid of Jesus but eventually sentenced him to death. People today are afraid of Jesus. Why? Because they do not understand him, just like Pilate didn't understand him. And so they prefer to wash their hands of the situation, to avoid it, to try to shift it over to others. Out of sight, out of mind. Is this you? Five, Claudia suffered much because of Jesus. <laughs> she said that. I have suffered much today because of that man, that righteous man. People today suffer much because they reject Jesus. He is the only one who can forgive our sins. He is the only one who can cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He's the only one who can cancel our tremendous, unpayable by us debt and all our breaches of God's law, endless breaches of His law. He is the only one who can give us righteousness. He is the only one who can deliver us from sin. He's the only one who can deliver us from Satan. He's the only one who can deliver us from the world. He's the only one who can deliver us from death. He's the only one who can deliver us from hell. He's the only one who can give us eternal, abundant life by restoring us to our Maker. Suffering comes as we remain in our sin and the shame and guilt. And yet He can liberate us from it. Number six, lastly, Judas was filled with guilt because of his decision to betray Jesus. People today are filled with guilt because of their sin and rejection of Jesus. Is this you? In verse 15, Pilate was left with only one option. We are left with three options today. Okay? I'm bringing it to an end. The first option is for those of us who are already in Christ. We can rejoice. That's our option. We can rejoice because of what Jesus has done for us. You must understand, you know, we put all the emphasis on what He accomplished for us at the cross, and rightly so. We put zero emphasis on what we just read, on what He accomplished for us here, because that is your trial. That was your trial. That was your flogging. That was your beating. That was your sentence, my sentence. All that he received at the praetorium was yours and was mine. We have broken God's laws endlessly. And yet he was innocent and he stood there in our place and absorbed 
every flash, every thorn, every insult, every smack to the face and brutal hit on top of the head with that reed. He took it all for you and for me if we're in Christ. Obviously, Lord willing, next week we'll look at what else he took for us at the cross. That's the first thing, option for us is to rejoice. Second, we can continue to reject Jesus and remain in our sin, fear, and guilt. If we stay in this mode unto death, we will die in our sins and we will face God's wrath and judgment. The punishment Jesus received at the praetorium and the cross is a picture of what unbelievers receive for rejecting Him. It is an example. Everything that Jesus took at the praetorium and on the cross was God's righteous judgment against sin. And if we're still in our sin, what Jesus received, that we will receive in hell and Hades. And I'm confident that it will be something that no one would ever want to experience. And yet if we just keep rejecting him, that's, and we hold that line, that's where we'll be. Or third, we can repent and believe in Jesus. By grace through faith, we can believe that he lived for our righteousness, that he died for our sins, that he paid for our sins, beginning at the praetorium, that he was buried to settle our account with God, to to give us total and absolute clemency, relief before a holy God. Believe that he rose from the grave three days later, victorious over sin, Satan, death, and hell for us. That is the mighty deliverance from sin, fear, guilt, wrath, and judgment that the Holy Spirit presents to you today. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Believe in Him and in Him alone.